Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It is the 31st of January. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen, and I am Carmen LaBerge. If this is your first time here with us, hey, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for including me in your day today. Look forward to getting to know you. Um, I can hardly believe it's January the 31st. Like, is that possible? I had to look at the calendar twice. Uh, That means that tomorrow is February the 1st. So, I don't know. Anything not already set up on auto pay? That's exactly, that's, that's actually the thought that crossed my mind. D- do I have all the right things set up on auto pay for the first of the month? And if not, tomorrow is the first of the month. So I need to check in on some of those things. Um, some of those things that like auto renew every year, like it seems to me like I set them up for February the 1st because January the 1st, I have too many other things I'm thinking about. So there you go. That's what's on my mind this morning. What's on your mind this morning? Um, oh, tomorrow is February the 1st, so I'm wondering if you would join me in reading through the Bible together. We are starting the book of Acts tomorrow. Tomorrow. So uh, go to MyFaithRadio.com and join us in reading the book of Acts one chapter a day for each day of February. Yep. So that starts tomorrow. So don't miss out on that. Certainly still time to sign up for that opportunity. Uh, So go to MyFaithRadio.com, reading through the Bible together, the book of Acts. Uh, We'll send you the, I mean, it's not not like it's a reading plan because it works like this. February 1, Acts 1, February 2, Acts 2. So instead, what we supply to you um, is a really great study guide that you can download and share with other people. It's all free. Um, and and then a daily podcast as well, just to help you engage with the material and understand it. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't even say a little more fully. Understand it from the perspective of those of us who are reading it with you and offering our sense of what's happening in that passage on that day. So there you go. Um, Acts, the book of Acts. Join us in reading it together as we're reading through the Bible. In my quiet time this morning, oh, wait, we should celebrate Paul Perot. I don't know if we have like a drum roll, but you could be the let's celebrate together. How many children now have a child champion through our one child um, drive uh, at the end of last week and over the weekend? Well, over the weekend, a lot of people did call in and... We are now, for Faith Radio, 116 child champions and children sponsored. Thank you so much. That's amazing. That's really extraordinary. And if you saying to yourself, you know, I, I feel like I missed out on that opportunity. No, no you, you didn't. didn't. No, you, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You can still um, check in with us at MyFaithRadio.com. The one child information is still posted there. And you can um, you can still sponsor a child. There's there's literally an endless opportunity to do this. So uh, I personally invite you, as does Paul, to engage in this. And thank you to the 116 of you who stepped forward as child champions uh, during this partnership with One Child and Faith Radio. 
So, um, yeah, I'm really very, very excited. All right. I was struck this morning during my quiet time by a question. And my, the question is this. How much of my personal worship time is spent simply delighting in the presence of the Lord? Versus how much of it is spent, you know, reading scripture, reflecting on scripture, making my little notes about what I've read in my journal, pouring over a passage. Um, how, how much of my time is spent in the just look at me, I'm right here presence of the Lord? And I realized in that moment that my quiet time um, has become a, I'm not going to say it's quite an academic exercise because it's definitely devotional. But it's dependent, it's certainly dependent on, like, having my Bible right there open with me as a literate person with a printed Bible, as if that makes for a good quiet time with the Lord. And so I just offer that question up to you today as well. Um, Are you delighting in the Lord in your time with Him, just delighting in the presence of the Lord? Could we have a quiet time where we just delight in the presence of the Lord? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Cold pizza for breakfast. Warm Coke to wash it down. Maybe a couple of anchovies. All right, well, it's Monday morning, and so um, we have some leftovers Oh, from over the weekend to cover together. There was a scene in New York City uh, at the end of the week that I really think is just worthy of comment. Uh, not sure if you have seen the pictures. If not, it's actually worthy uh, of of Googling. If you just Google New York City police officer or even just the words sea of blue, uh, what will come up uh, in your Google images are these photographs of Thousands and thousands and thousands of police officers filling the streets of New York City uh, outside of St. Patrick's Cathedral during um, during the funeral service for slain officer Rivera um, alongside officer uh, Wilbert Mora, both of whom were fatally wounded on January the 21st by a gunman who opened fire on them in a hallway as they responded to an emergency call. So Jason Rivera, um, you know, he's a young man. He's out there offering his life in service to his community. Um, And the thousands of NYPD police officers that packed the streets for their fallen, you know, brother Jason Rivera and for the farewell service at St. Patrick's Cathedral, um, the, the pictures speak volumes. And I just encourage you to uh, to consider the, the value of a human life, every life, and the people who every single day get up in the morning knowing that they are potentially offering their life as a sacrifice in service to others. I mean, I have to tell you, I don't get up in the morning and think to myself, you know, getting on the radio this morning might, might well cost me my life. I might, this might be an act of, of life sacrifice. No, I don't think that way. But I know that the police officers in my community think that way. I know that my state troopers feel that way. I know that first responders of every variety in cities across the country feel that way. Um, I certainly know that those serving in our armed forces feel that way. And that's a lot of people 
getting up today, going to a job where they recognize their life, their life may be offered as a sacrifice in service to others. And so when all of the headlines and uh, and commentary today is about, you know, the greatest of all time and whether or not he's retiring from football, like just ask yourself for a moment, what does that matter in the grand scheme of things? I mean, has Tom Brady had a great football career? Yes, he has. Is he the greatest of all time? Well, that I guess that uh, depends on your definition of greatness and time. And are the men and women who every single day, quietly, without any sort of fanfare, get up and put on a uniform and go out there offering their lives in ready sacrifice for the rest of us, are not they greater? I just want us to think about what we're thinking about today and the way we're thinking about the things that we're thinking about today. A little bit of perspective. Even the most capable, well-armed men are merely human. And those thousands and thousands of officers with their heads bowed toward St. Patrick's Cathedral are acknowledging that life is lived in view of eternity. I was once told that weddings are optional, but funerals are mandatory. And it got me thinking, you know, we certainly have evidence that Jesus attended a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The story of that in the Gospel of John, his first sign done there. Really so much about Jesus' affirmation of marriage between one man and one woman, Jesus' affirmation of joy and celebration and abundance. Jesus also showed up at a couple of funerals, and he changed the reality of, um, of those situations. So why don't you read Luke 7 today, and then also read John chapter 11. And take note of what happens when Jesus shows up at a funeral, and then ask yourself, you know, do I, is there a funeral I need to, need to attend? Weddings are optional. Funerals are mandatory. You and I live in view of eternity, and there are a lot of people getting up today who are going forth uh, to offer their lives in potential sacrifice for others. Let's be sure we call them greatest among us. We'll be right back. La, 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 lasagna. You want the summer lasagna, magnifico, or maybe spaghetti. Okay, that sounds really good right now. Doesn't it? <clears throat> a little, left, little leftover lasagna, a little leftover spaghetti. Mmm. Yeah, that sounds really good. Okay, so uh, it is Monday morning, and I am covering some leftovers from the weekend, thus Paul's selection of music. On the question of the selection of music, I have a text uh, this morning, which, just a reminder, you can always text me during the show, 877-933-2484. Sometimes people just, um, you know, randomly include me in the conversations of their day, for which I am very, very grateful. And so Mary says this morning, um, hey, I just needed to vent this to someone who cares. And so thank you, Mary, for your vent this morning. But here's Mary's little vent. Um, I have a question. What's wrong with traditional church? We used to maybe uh, be a little bored as a kid, possibly um, fall away as young adults, uh, but grew up and came back. Going contemporary didn't seem to be the cure for all of that. Um, All right. So, Mary, I'm thinking here you're talking about music styles, right? Isn't when we... we when we think about, quote-unquote, going contemporary, 
Um, is there a list of things that we're talking about there, or are we primarily talking about music? We might also be talking about um, the way people dress for worship, Maybe the informality of the way people dress for worship is bothering Mary this morning. I don't know. Um, it's a good question. It's an interesting question. Um, and I think that there are layers and layers and layers of answers to that question. I think those of us who know what it means to enter the presence of God uh, and to prepare ourselves to do so maybe have given more thoughtful consideration to this than those who are exploring Christianity or or sort of on the edge or on the fringe of a relationship with God. And so I um, I know that there are entry points at a cultural level for some people that uh, for whom the the traditions of the church, the language of old hymns, um, particular, uh, versions of the Bible in terms of their language would be hurdles and stumbling blocks um, for people who are not believers. Like, I, I think all of those are parts of the conversation. So, Mary, thanks for the question. I don't really have a full, robust answer for you, but thank you so much for the question and the conversation this morning. So, I wonder if you saw this uh, headline over the weekend. Dozens of students were mistakenly told they got full-ride scholarships to college. And then, of course, they were told it was a mistake. Uh, Parker Christensen, here's the lead. A high school senior from Nuego, Michigan, received a notification from Central Michigan University on January the 21st, informing him that he had been awarded a prestigious full-ride scholarship to the university. University officials now say that Christensen and 57 other students received the notification in error. When I opened up the email saying, congratulations, my heart stopped. I was blown away, Christensen says, 18 years old, wants to pursue pre-med at CMU. I couldn't believe I was a part of this group, probably out of like 600 kids that applied for it. It was amazing. So here's a, um, here's a student who has a dream. He's been pursuing his dream. He's been preparing. Um, he made application in October to the school of his choice, and then he applied for the university's prestigious Centralis Scholar Award, um, through which uh, students are given full tuition, room, and board for four years. They also receive a $5,000 Study Away Award. So it is a big academic award. It is a real full-ride scholarship. Um, and so you'd have to submit essays, and you had to create a project. Obviously, your GPA and, and all kinds of other things are taken into account. So then he got a notification that uh, after he got a notification that he'd received the scholarship, um, he then found out that, no, he had, he had received it in error. 58 students received the notification in error. A new messaging technology inadvertently posted a message about the award seen by students who were logged into, logged into the system at the time. So any, anybody that was logged into the system at the time saw the message. Just think about that for just a moment. Um, and so anyway, the university, ha- here's the end of the story. The university has said it's going to make good on these, um, on these offers, um, but it's going to be the equivalent of full tuition, not all sort of the extras, room, board, the $5,000 um, 
study away stipend, those kinds of things. But the university is making good um, on a major, major portion of this. So it got me thinking to go to college or not to go to college. That is a big question these days. And if college, which one? And how are you going to pay for it? And where will you live and with whom? And where and what will you eat? And, and how will you get around? And how will you get back and forth if you ever want to return home? Who's going to do your laundry? What are you going to do beyond the classroom? Uh, college and preparing for college, going to college, it's a time of millions of decisions that affect uh, who we are in the moment and also forge who we are becoming in life ahead. And so I thought it might be interesting for each and every one of us today to engage in a little exercise. Think for a moment about going back to school. I know, I know. Some of you are saying, I am way past that stage of life. Well, just, just roll with me for a moment. As an exercise, think for a moment about going back to school. What would you want to study? Where would you aspire to go? What school? How might you pay for that? What would you sacrifice in terms of where you are now and how you live now in order to attain that? When I arrived at graduate school in the fall of 1990, I was uh, young. Like I had just graduated from uh, the University of Florida in the spring of 1990, and I started at, uh, at Princeton Theological Seminary in the fall of 1990. So I was young, wet behind the ears, like technically straight out of college. And in my um, entering class, there was one couple who really stood out. Because they were literally old enough to be my parents. Their names are Gary and Joyce Salquist, and they were from Cincinnati. And I learned that um, Gary had been an executive at Procter & Gamble. Their kids were in college, and now so were they. Why were they doing this? Because they had a dream. Because they had a passion. Because they had an interest in serving emerging Christians or Christians in emerging generations um, through higher education. Gary was in seminary in order that Gary could prepare to be the president of a Christian college. It was what God had set in his heart and in his mind, and he knew he had all of the uh, you know, requisite qualities in terms of business acumen and uh, leadership in life, but he didn't have the academic credential that was required. And so he was there to get it. And in his 50s, he learned Greek and Hebrew. So never say, well, I'm past that point. I'm too far gone. Because it's never too late to walk by faith into the future filled with hope that God has planned for you. Never. It's never too late. I'm thinking of guys in the Bible who were like 80 when they started down their journey. And God will make a way where there seems to be no way. Um, So there you go. All right, one more quick thing um, before we uh, take a little break. The iPhone is egg- is adding a pregnant man emoji. Yeah, nobody needed that. Nobody asked for that. Nobody even really wants it. Um, but I will say this. Uh, you and I as Christians need to meet the world's confusion on these topics with compassion and with truth. So that would be my encouragement to you today when people are talking about, laughing about, and maybe even sending you the pregnant man emoji on their phones or on your phone. Let's meet the world's confusion on this topic with compassion and with truth. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back.
Okay, yes, yes, yes. I know there were football games yesterday. Uh, For those of you who know there were football games but don't know anything about that and feel like you need a little information heading into the day on that particular topic, the Rams and the Bengals, the Los Angeles Rams and the Cincinnati Bengals uh, are headed to the Super Bowl. Now, there's a backstory to both of those um, declarations, and uh, I, yeah, I think there's a surprise in that announcement that the Rams and the Bengals are headed to the Super Bowl. I think a month ago, if you had asked us if that would be uh, the the head-to-head in the Super Bowl, uh, virtually no one would have chosen this particular, yeah, contest. There you go. That's what I have for you. I do like Joe Burrow. Um, yeah, he if you he's less like super clean cut appears to be. This is a completely 100 percent outward appearance assessment. I know nothing about the man. I can just tell you he looks like a nice clean cut boy. There you go. So that would be my football judgment on this Monday morning. Um, <clears throat> so when we talk with Daniel Bennett in just a moment, we're going to cover a range of headlines related to what's happening um, both here on the national and on the international scene in terms of politics. Obviously, one of the big conversations that everyone is having is related to who President Biden will nominate um, to succeed Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court. I'm wondering what kinds of conversations you have uh, participated in or overheard related to this topic. Surely one of those conversations is, you know, is the list already pared down Uh, to particular groups or ethnicities or genders prior to even starting the conversation. And that's, uh, I think that's an interesting conversation for us to have. Is the pool limited before we even start the conversation? Uh, One of the things that I think is of interest to everyone is you don't actually have to be an attorney, let alone a judge, to be uh, nominated to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. And I think to myself, wow, of the of the things that I have read in terms of like briefs um, that have gone to the Supreme Court. If you're not an attorney, there's just going to be a whole lot of catching up that you have to do. Um, If you're not a judge, um, I think there's there's a lot of the way that the system works that would be necessary for you to understand in order to engage. So we're going to talk with Daniel Bennett about the qualifications of Supreme Court justices and uh, the retirement of Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer and what lies ahead. We'll also talk about what is brewing, continuing to brew between Russia and Ukraine. We'll be right back. Daniel Bennett's back. You can find him at John Brown University. You can also find him at his Uneasy Citizenship blog on Substack. Excuse me. Daniel, welcome back. Hey, thanks a lot. Good morning. Thank you for being here. All right. So the the announced retirement of Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, um, he highlighted in his own comments about his retirement the nature of American democracy as an experiment. I thought that was a good uh, reminder for all of us. Yeah, it's absolutely right. I actually was just talking to uh, some students about this the other day. Uh, 
you know, the Constitution, in the preamble of the Constitution, the framers wrote that we are creating a more perfect union. And that implies that it will never be, you know, perfected necessarily. It's always going to need to be revised. If we look at our uh, constitutional amendment process, they were keenly aware that amendments might be needed to reflect the, the realities of the day. And um, for, for, for someone like Justice Breyer, who's been on the court since 1994, you know, he has a bit of a vantage point on this. So do the longer serving justices, you know, Clarence Thomas, uh, another one, Anthony Kennedy, who retired recently. Um, there is a sense of this, this longer picture where they can, unlike presidents and uh, some senators and congressmen, they can really take a, you know, several decade tour of the United States and see the changes that are that are happening and, and talk about the ways in which it, uh, we, we as a society may need to uh, change things. So uh, in for those of us that are Protestant Christians, we we have this understanding of of Reformation history and um, and even this notion that that which is reformed is also always being reformed. I would argue, according to the Word of God. Um, if I apply that sort of to my American experience and use the Constitution here, uh, I think what we're talking about is that what we experience as Americans is is in itself already uh, a different, ref, you know, quote-unquote, reformed version of democracy, and it is also always being reformed, but that reformation is supposed to be coming consistently through the Constitution. And that really is, in large measure, the role of the Supreme Court, the application of the Constitution to current reality. Is that an accurate understanding? Well, that's certainly the way that we've been doing it for about 200, a little over 200 years. Um, you know, the Supreme Court has essentially uh, <laughs> established itself as the arbiter of what the Constitution says, and, you know, more importantly, how it binds other branches of government and the states in some cases. Uh, and, and, you know, I think there's something to be said for having uh, figures like Supreme Court justices be these supposedly, uh, you know, maybe somewhat apolitical figures doing this. Um, I think the danger comes when uh, we start to think of the Supreme Court as a completely apolitical branch or a mm -hmm. branch that has nothing to do with politics, because ultimately it is a political branch, right? The way we choose justices, the the dialogue around the Supreme Court nominations process. Uh, there's a reason why Donald Trump's justices look different than Barack Obama's justices in terms of their ideologies and, and what they what they stand for in terms of legal reasoning. Um, but no, I, so, so I think you're right. Uh, there is something to be said about having the Supreme Court act in that way. But there's also a bit of a downside when these justices can sometimes act in a way that might not reflect the, you know, majoritarian impulses of the country or, you know, where culture is or might be going. So it's kind of I tell my students a lot about trade offs. Right. That's an important trade off in our system. All right, Daniel, um, we have heard a lot already about prospective candidates um, who President Biden may well nominate for this position. There's been lots of conversation about a, a promise that he made during the campaign that if given the opportunity, um, his candidate or his nominee for the next seat on the Supreme Court would be a black woman. Talk with us about um, about that as an express limitation of a, uh, of a pool of candidates. 
Yeah. So, I mean, in one sense, it absolutely is an express limitation. Uh, obviously, if you're a, a, a white male justice or white male judge or lawyer somewhere who, you know, maybe otherwise shares the Biden administration's legal goals or agendas, you're effectively uh, blackballed. You're, you're not going to be considered for the position. Um, you know, at the same time, though, I feel like we do this a lot with uh, with Supreme Court nominations and the fact that that Joe Biden on the campaign trail was so was so explicit about gender and race, maybe his you know, riled some feathers. Um, we do this. We do this a lot, though. Uh, of course, I mean, they've they've brought up the example of of uh, then candidate Reagan mentioning he, he would appoint the first woman to the Supreme Court that eventually became Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, there's discussions every time there's a vacancy. Do we want to keep <laughs> the pool limited to graduates of Harvard and Yale Law School? Because uh, that's right now it's eight out of the nine justices went to one of those two law schools. And it uh, looks like no matter who Biden picks, it's going to be another Harvard or Yale alum. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's there's valid criticism there. But also, I think it's a bit disingenuous to say that this is the first time this has happened where we're limiting the pool to a certain group. Yeah, I would uh, completely agree with you. And that's an excellent observation uh, in terms of the law schools that they attended. I think that another part of the conversation as Christians that you know, we have to be prepared to have, and it's a hard conversation to have, but this actually gives us a good opportunity to point to both race and gender and say they are biological realities. Mm. If race and gender are social constructs, which is often argued by people on the progressive left, then it makes no sense to limit a pool of candidates to that which is quote-unquote black or that which is quote-unquote woman. Because there's are, those are those are social constructs in progressive ideology. And so yeah. you, you see the challenge, right? And so I think we have an opportunity as Christians to say, okay, there's an argument being made that both race and gender are biological realities, um, and a pool of candidates can be limited by race and gender in these ways and, 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 and it's a meaningful and it's a meaningful limited pool. Um, and so yep. not just anyone is black and not just anyone is female. And I think that's a right. good opportunity for us to, to say, OK, there is a conversation being had here about reality. And that's good. Yeah, no, it's actually that's absolutely right. And I actually hadn't thought of that. But you're, I think I think you hit the nail on the head uh, th- that that uh, those arguments about race and gender often kind of fall apart <laughs> when, in, in practice. You know, obviously, if, if uh, you know, a white man were to say, well, I identify as a woman, why am I not being uh, considered for this position? Uh, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, certainly the Biden administration wouldn't consider that. Maybe some on the left might have trouble reconciling those things. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a good opportunity to say, OK, if this is the if this is the litmus, let's at least agree that there are realities in play. Yeah. I think that's um, I think that's definitely true. All right. Um, I want to touch on a couple of other topics with you. I think that we can um, give people an update on what's happening uh, in uh, in the situation between Russia and Ukraine. My favorite part of this story took place over the weekend, um, a fishing community on the southern tip of Ireland. So these group of fishermen actually turned the Russian Navy around. So Russia had ordered these naval drills off the Irish coast, um, and this group of fishermen, led by, because you couldn't cast this any better, a guy named Patrick Murphy, who is head <laughs> of the Castletownbury-based Irish South and West Fish Producers Organization, spelled with an S, not a Z, 
um, who said, well, I'm really shocked. I didn't think little old us just acting together would have an impact on international diplomacy. So they actually turned the uh, Russian Navy around. Moscow had planned these exercises about 150 miles off the Irish coast. Um, and uh, and they are not going to do that now because these Irish fishermen, I mean, they didn't stand their ground. I guess they stood their waves. I just love My this goodness. story. That's great. Yeah. Another another evidence. Right. Don't mess with the Irish. They uh, they'll take care of business. Well, and That's regular hilarious. people. I think that yeah. I think that what I like about this is this is an act of regular people organizing themselves, um, saying this is really going to hurt us if you do this. Um, no. Please don't do this. And it actually moving the needle on something that a bunch of people in suits going to a lot of meetings in Geneva have not been able to move oh, the yeah. needle on. No, I think it's exa- yeah. No, that's exactly right. Uh, a lot of Russia's foreign policy, it's uh, I guess centered on this the show of force or the show of strength. Um, but when you actually try to put that into practice, uh, and it's not just Russia; it's really any country. Um, it's harder to do than than actually say you're going to do. So good for them. <laughs> right? Yeah, I kind of totally loved it. All right, um, Daniel, let's take a very uh, very brief pause, and then we come back. I want to have kind of this wide-ranging conversation with you about the balance or the trade-offs maybe is a good word because that's a word you used a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. um, between like freedom and, and, and then like security and convenience. Like I feel like mm-hmm. as citizens, we, you know, we declare that we're free and we want to live free and we want to do all these things, um, and we make these trade-offs – giving away personal security for a lot of convenience. And I'm not sure that everyone, like, even knows they're doing that. Could we talk a little bit about that when we come back? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. I'm talking with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University. Um, He blogs. It's called the Uneasy Citizenship Blog. We're also going to talk about some of his podcast picks when we come back. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right. Eleven years ago, an Israeli company released a new spyware product known as Pegasus, and it changed cyber warfare. Eleven years ago, Pegasus could reliably decipher the communications of smartphones without the phone's user knowing and without the cooperation of companies like AT&T, Apple, Verizon, on and on and on. Mexico's government bought Pegasus. Um and used it to capture El Chapo, which we think of as a very good thing. But Pegasus has also been used to do things that, well, people living in free democracies see as an invasion of their privacy. So, um, Daniel, obviously, uh, companies have made a lot of progress in the last 11 years on this front. I'm certainly not going to assume that the version of Pegasus released in 2011 is still the one being used today. Um what do, what do we know uh, as you know American citizens in terms of what the government is using to spy on us and how should I, I don't know how should we feel about the exchange that we're making in terms of convenience right all of these things that I want to have that are so convenient on my phone versus the trade off of my personal security you know, as to the first question, I don't think we really know what's being used. Uh, you know, I think if the governments uh, and, and agencies are using technology to, to monitor 
uh, people or track certain things are probably not going to be particularly forthcoming about the details of those things. We know certain things that you know they purchased and that they've utilized in the past, but the methods are a little little tricky. But this is one of the biggest. Uh, again, I use that word a lot. This is the this is one of the biggest trade offs of living in a free society. So if we go back to the 9/11 attacks, one of the things that happened was a more stringent and uh, exhaustive screening process uh, for travel. And it's, you know, it, for, those of, for those of us who travel semi-regularly or even more regularly than that, uh, it is, it is a, it's a nuisance, right? You have to stand in the lines. You got to take off your shoes. You can't carry more than a few ounces of liquid on the plane. You can't carry water bottles with you. You have to buy the expensive drinks in the airport um, or, you know, fill up your water bottle. But uh, that's the trade-off that we've decided to make in order to potentially limit another 9/11-style terror attack. Um, and so it's a constant, it's a constant tension here. And this even gets murkier when we're talking about things that might not affect, you know, us on a on an, an observable basis. So are we downloading certain apps to our phones? To what extent can those apps be used to? track or monitor what we're searching for, what we're reading. And some of some of our listeners, and I would probably count myself in this, would say, well, I don't really have anything to hide. Who cares um, if the government wants to know that I check ESPN a lot during the Portland Trailblazers season? Great. You know, fantastic. Um, but there is something more fundamental than that. Like, to what extent can the government really be tracking its citizens and how can that information be used against citizens if a more nefarious government comes into place? So we um, frequently talk with a guy named Chris Martin, and he works for um, for Moody Publishers, and he writes on this topic, and it's called Terms of Service. And, you know, he's, he's always warning us um, that if it's free to use, so let's say mm-hmm. Facebook, uh, uh, Google, I mean, you know, if it's free to use, you are the product. Yeah. If it's free to use, you are the product. And I, I, will, I will confess that I have thought about that sentence um, now that Chris has sort of spoken it into my head, right? Um, I, I now at least think about it. So I at least now know, okay, when I use this free downloadable app, when I use this free service, when I whatever, I recognize I am the product. And so yeah. something about me is being harvested for the use of this company, and they're going to sell it to someone else. And so right. am I comfortable with that? Whatever information I'm giving them access to, like when it says, you know, well, I, this, to use this app, you've got to give your location. You've got to give us access to your location or your camera or your pictures or your – and I'm thinking mm. to myself, all right, do I want then all of that to in turn be available to whomever it is they're going to sell it to because I'm the product here? Yeah. Well, and I think that that piece of advice is really, really helpful in that, you know, we may decide we may, we may make that conscious decision to say, OK, well, I might be the product here. I really like using Instagram or Facebook or whatever app we download, but that might affect the way that we respond to that app. And so maybe we're more conscious when using it about these algorithms that are employed or deployed to try to shift our attention in different directions. Maybe that, maybe that, maybe remembering what your guest had said helps us to keep our discernment front and center to say, if we're the product, at least be cognizant of it. And maybe even see pushing back or thinking about, 
these uh, these outcomes as a sign of resistance almost. So one of the conversations that I think we're hearing more about uh, as we're, uh, you know, as we're reading things related to Russia and Ukraine um, is that we should anticipate or maybe it's already happened that Russia has deployed, quote unquote, cyber warfare in -hmm. advance of uh, any sort of ground effort. Um, And so I I think that when I think of cyber warfare, (laughs) this is my very pedestrian um, acknowledgement here. I think of somehow, some way, like the power grid being disrupted or somehow somebody's going to turn off the internet. And that is going to disrupt my life very dramatically. Um, But cyber warfare is more than that uh, in terms of the way it's deployed on the social internet. Um, So what, what thoughts, if any, have you given to this front, this cyber warfare front? Well, um, and again, we were just talking about this in class the other day in my international relations class. The way we've typically measured power, you know, historically in, in international relations is in terms of, you know, the size and scale of economies or the size of militaries, right? The United States is a superpower uh, for, you know, just one reason is the, the number of nuclear weapons we have and the size of our military and the investments we make in our infrastructures with military and defense spending. Cyber warfare somewhat changes that, or at least kind of throws a wrench into that. Because if you can invest relatively, you know, little money in, you know, a few dozen highly skilled uh, coders or hackers, and they can go in and disrupt certain key uh, communications between militaries, between branches of the military, if they can... You know, right now the United States relies heavily on drones and unmanned uh, aerial vehicles. If that can be disrupted by a few keystrokes halfway around the world, that changes the power dynamics. And so maybe that's a more uh, traditional way of thinking about cyber warfare. But it also happens, like you said, on the social Internet um, with propaganda, misinformation. We've talked a lot about this. I, at least I know you have and thought a lot about this. But, uh, you know, sowing misinformation and sowing distrust or sowing dissatisfaction uh, in the Ukrainian government, for example, that makes it more likely for the people to turn against their government. So it's a lot more nuanced. It's a lot messier. Uh, but ultimately, it's, it, it's going to disrupt what we think about as power in the 21st century. I think it also requires us to be very vigilant, alert, mm. skeptical turn up our own filters in terms of what we believe when we read it and certainly what we pass along to others as quote unquote true. I mean, I just I I feel like we we have reached the stage where even if it appears to have come from a reliable source, I I actually have to fact check it um, and see if that reliable source is is actually the reliable source or maybe they got hacked like it's that right. Yeah, it's uh, we have reached a very challenging stage, I think, because it takes an inordinate amount of time to actually uh, verify the veracity of the information that we're um, that we're reading and seeing. Daniel, as always, um, thank you so very much. You guys can read Daniel's podcast picks um, at danielbennett.substack.com. He's got a great list there if you're looking for a new podcast to listen to. There's um, there's a reliable list right there. Daniel, as always, thank you so much for what you do. Thanks, Carmen. Absolutely. We'll be right back.
All right, uh, a couple of you have asked, hey, aren't you going to talk about the trucker convoy in Canada? All right, if you're not familiar with it, the Freedom Convoy of Truckers made is making its way, actually began making its way across the country in protest of Canada's vaccine mandates. Uh, I think the most concerning story I have seen thus far related to this is out of Nova Scotia, um, where that Canadian province made it illegal for people, regular citizens, day-to-day folks like you and me, should we be Canadian, uh, made it illegal for citizens to gather along a highway in advance of the Freedom Convoy uh, making its way across the country. Um, And so those people were not allowed to freely gather along the road. You should just consider that in terms of the limitation of freedom uh, as the government's response to people doing something that, um, frankly, is not illegal to do. But they made it illegal uh, right there in Nova Scotia. So we have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We're going to talk with our friend Dr. Linda Mental about just how much we need a brain dump. I don't know. That sounds good to me. Doesn't a brain dump, doesn't that feel like a, like there's just a lot in there and it would be good to just get it out. Um, And then I have a really special guest for us in the bottom of the next hour. His name is Elijah Stacy. He's a very young man. He is facing death with courage and hope. Um, Inspiring story. He was 17 years old when he wrote the book. He's 19 now, and he is on a mission to cure the disease he suffers from. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.